0: I'm Bill Moyers. It's good to have your ear. This week on Moyers & Company, stories of courage and struggle, from the icon Marshall Gans on what it takes for David to bring down Goliath.
1: TO BE A REALIST IS TO RECOGNIZE THAT THE WORLD IS NOT A DOMAIN IN WHICH THE PROBABLE ALWAYS HAPPENS. I MEAN, GOLIATH IS MORE LIKELY TO WIN, BUT YOU KNOW WHAT? SOMETIMES DAVID DOES. AND
0: ROCHELLE Laforest AND MADELINE JANIS on how people power delivers change.
2: Small victories aggregate to this larger, sort of beating heart and people feeling deeply inspired by each other, but it takes work. Everybody deserves a
3: good job and a decent life. And that our government, our democracy, has the tools to ensure that.
0: Thanks for joining us. How do you handle the grim news of inequality, corruption, poverty, dysfunction, and buffoonery that washes over us every day? Well, you can tune out and ignore it, pretend it will go away until it's too late, or you can look around, find kindred spirits, and throw your energies into the fight for justice. That's exactly the summons we've heard from people at this table who have refused to give in to the litany of woe. To that chorus let us now add the witness of Marshall Ganz. He's an American maestro of organizing who himself has never given in to despair
1: or given over to fear. How, how, HOW CAN CHANGE EVER HAPPEN IF THE POWERFUL ALWAYS WIN? THERE ARE CONDITIONS UNDER WHICH TURNS OUT DAVID CAN SOMETIMES WIN. AT HARVARD'S KENNEDY SCHOOL OF GOVERNMENT Marshall
0: Gans teaches the next generation of organizers, students from all over the world. He tells them, when in doubt, just remember the story in the Bible of little
1: David and his slingshot. What did you take from the classic story of David and Goliath? How does it begin? How does the whole thing? When does when does the action begin? No.
2: Goliath is marching out and repeatedly uh, challenging the Israelites, and no one comes out to challenge him.
1: Right. And so that's just going on day after day. So then what, when does the action shift?
2: When David shows up to bring the food to his brothers and hears this and says, why does no one do anything to respond to this?
1: In other words, the first thing that happens here is injustice, need to act, commit, and then the action begins. Until that point, nothing's really happening. When the king says here, take my, take my helmet, take my shield, Take my armor. What, what's David do? Take my sword? Yeah. He puts them on. on. Puts them on. Yeah. See, David doesn't have it all figured out. That's the point. He's in action here. He doesn't have it all figured out. King says, Oh, you're going to fight power here? You need weaponry to fight power. David actually takes them, he puts them on, and then what happens?
4: He can't,
1: he can't move. They're too heavy, literally. He can't move. That's when he has his moment of insight. And he looks down at his feet and he sees these five smooth stones there. He says, Wait a second. I'm not a soldier, I'm a shepherd. And that's Tim, when he says, as a shepherd, I knew how to protect my flock from the wolf and the bear. And it wasn't with the sword, it wasn't with the shield. It was with the stone, the sling. Maybe Goliath's just another wolf, just another bear. Hey, what's Goliath's reaction? Wow.
0: My dog.
1: Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> that's very good, it's
0: good. That's, yeah. right. that's how I imagine it, might. <laughs> ho, oh, ho,
1: ho, yeah, this. Am I a dog, you send a boy with a stick and in the middle of the third, ho, <laughs> stone in the forehead into Goliath and not a story about nonviolence. Smiting Goliath
0: might as well be Marshall Gans's job description. It began in Mississippi's Freedom Summer of 1964 when his fury against injustice pulled him out of Harvard and into the struggle for civil rights. From there, he signed on with the legendary Cesar Chavez and the United Farm Workers, and for sixteen years struggled to unionize the men and women in the fields of California who toiled endless hours and mounting days, picking crops for next to nothing. Three decades after Marshall Gans had dropped out of Harvard, he went back to finish his degree and earn a doctorate. A few years later, he was asked to become the architect behind the Obama campaign's skillful organizing of students and volunteers. Today, Marshall Gans is a founder of the Leading Change Network. That's a global community of organizers, educators, and researchers mobilizing for democracy. You'll find more of his experience and philosophy in this book, Why David Sometimes Wins. Marshall Gans, it's good to meet you. It's good to meet you, Bill. Stories have been a powerful part of your life. Where did that come from? Why
1: stories? first of all, I grew up in in stories. My father was a rabbi. And I grew up with the exodus story as a child. And I was always puzzled by the fact that, you know, they said at a certain point, you were slaves in Egypt. I'd never been a slave or been to Egypt. They (laughs) said to the children. And, and, but then I came to realize that what it meant was the story really wasn't the property of one people, time or place. And then out to the farm workers. We're in, we're in uh, the, the, the religious narrative. I mean, I, w- one of my first assignments in the Farm Workers was to organize a march from Delano to Sacramento, uh, but it wasn't a march. It was a peregrinacion, it was a pilgrimage. It was at Lent. It reached Sacramento on Easter Sunday. It was like an enactment of the redemptive narrative of Easter, but it was built into the movement that we were building. So. In my experience in organizing, it was also all within narrative. And so we kind of knew that narrative stories mattered, and they mattered to the heart. And they weren't the whole story, the, the whole story, so to speak. They, strategy mattered, structure mattered, but narrative mattered. The motivation, the courage. Until I read your book about Chavez and
0: the Strikers, I didn't know how much their own. Efforts revolved around stories, but Mm. then when I read your Mm. book, I realized how the stories that they told Mm. and the
1: stories that they inherited Mm -hmm. added up to a story they wanted to leave for their children. Oh yeah, sure. But I mean, that's one of the things that distinguishes movements from like interest groups. Movements have narratives; they tell stories because they are they are not just about rearranging economics and politics. They also rearrange meaning, and and they're not just about redistributing the goods, they're about figuring out what is good. So they have this cultural piece of work that movements are doing along with the economic and the political, not in lieu of it. And and I, and, and I think it's particularly important because doing that kind of work that movements do requires risk taking, uncertainty, going up against the odds, and that takes a lot of hope. And And so where do you go for hopefulness? Where do you go for courage? Where do you go? You go to those moral resources that are found within narratives and within identity work and within all faith traditions, cultural traditions. You know, Campbell told me that that was his great, the great appeal to him of of
0: Carl Jung, that Jung wrapped his psychology into the stories of what had actually happened in his life and and in the lives of the people sitting in front of it. That if he could get somebody into a story he knew that person would discover who he was more likely than if he dealt with just abstract ideas.
1: Boy, it is so true. It's the particular. See, we often think, we associate understanding with abstraction. It's Mm -hmm. just the opposite. That's right. The particular then becomes the portal on the transcendent because it's through the particular experience that I'm able then to communicate the emotional content of the value that is moving me. You know, my father was a uh, chaplain in the, in the American Army and we lived in Germany uh, after the war for three years. And my fifth birthday party was, uh, what, he worked a lot with what were called DPs, um, uh, displaced, displaced persons. persons. Well, my fifth birthday party was in a camp of, uh, a DP camp of all children. And my mother um, thought that I should give presents rather than get them. Well I didn't quite get that. <laughs> and I actually thought it was kind of cool that there were no parents. And so later I realized why there were no parents. And so it was, it was sort of a moment and then a deeper understanding of that moment mm-hmm. later that sort of was a kind of sobering experience and, and helped me understand the emotional work that star, that stories do. How so? It helped me understand that, that, that dealing with, dealing with fear is probably the central moral question we have to deal with. and I, By moral I mean, if you think, if you think of, of moral questions as not being about principles, but more what Hume called moral sentiment, in other words, how do, I, how do I live with empathy as opposed to alienation? How do I live with a sense of my own value as opposed to a, a feeling of deficiency? How do I live in a spirit of hope instead of f- fear? It's how to be in the world, right? How to, how to be in the world and capable of moral engagement with other human beings is it, sort of how I think of it. Maimonides, the, 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 the 12th century Jewish philosopher, defined hope as, uh, said, belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. Now let me say that again. That to be a realist is to recognize that the world Is not a domain in which the probable always happens. I mean, Goliath is more likely to win, but you know what? Sometimes David does. You know.
0: Was there a time you had to do that? You had to suspend disbelief and 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 see that the inevitable was not a necessity; that it was a probability. (laughs) Oh
1: boy, I. You know. uh, Well, first of all, thinking I could get into Harvard in the first place from Bakersfield. Uh, leaving Harvard to go work in Mississippi. And you you left before
0: you'd finished your studies.
1: Yeah, I had a year to go. I, 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 but see, when I left, it was to just go for the summer project. But I found a calling there.
4: Marshall, what are your motives for going down to Mississippi this summer? Uh,
1: reading the papers all last year, uh, talking with people and hearing about what was happening in Mississippi and in the South, shooting of Medgar Evers and, and other events, uh, like that, uh, generate such a feeling of, of outrage and injustice that you feel you must act. I found this thing called organizing, which I had never really understood or heard of. And it wasn't about charity. It wasn't about, sir, you know, help, helping. It was about, it was about justice. It, it was about working with other people in a way that respected and enhanced their agency and my own at the same time.
0: How did you learn that?
1: through being part of it, our initial project. So we were trying to claim voting rights because uh, African Americans uh, of course didn't have the right to vote, uh, in, in uh, any practical right to vote in Mississippi, Alabama, much of Georgia and so forth in those states at that time. The work was to uh, build a parallel organization called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that was because the, the regular Democratic Party excluded blacks. So our idea was we were going to build a parallel one choose a delegation, go to the Atlantic City Democratic Convention, 1964, challenge the racist Democrats, and replace them with our Democrats. And that was going to be a blow for the civil rights movement. So the work was going to people's houses, black people, talking with them, registering the Freedom Democratic Party, have a house meeting, come to a caucus, get elected, working with people to to find courage, to find solidarity, to find a sense of hopefulness. To stand up to pretty scary stuff. I mean, you know, three of our group were killed before we even left Oxford, Ohio. That was Goodwin, Cheney, and Schreiner. And so it was, I've often thought about that book by Paul Tillich, Love, Power, and Justice. Love, Power, and Justice. And where, where he argues that power without love can never be just, but similarly, love that doesn't take power seriously can never achieve justice. And that was, I think, what I learned. You've said that when you tell a story, the story becomes three stories. <laughs> yes. And well, when we do public, so public narrative is, is like a leadership skill of moving people to public action. So there's a story of self, which is using narrative to communicate why I've been called. So I tell a story that can communicate the values that move me a story of us is using narrative to create a sense of the values we share as a community and then the story of now is do they experience the challenge to those values that requires action now so it's sort of three three pieces
0: so that's what Martin Luther King meant when he talked about the
1: urgency of now at Riverside Church that's exactly right and you'll see in that talk his calling And then he reminds us of what we're called to as African Americans, as white Americans, and as Americans.
0: We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, that is such a thing as being too late. If We will make the right choice. We will be able to transform the jangling discords of our world into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood if we will but make the right choice we will be able to speed up the day all over america and all over the world when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream
1: it's so amazing the way he's able to to speak the lang- the christian language but in a way that's inclusive and not exclusive it's really extraordinary it's extraordinary, and uh, uh, and then and then because we share those values, guess what, folks? We face the fierce urgency of a now that requires action. That's that's what public narrative is. Is it true that
0: um, the slogan for Cesar Chavez and his farm workers was "See, si, se puede,", si, se puede yeah. which translated literally into Obama's "Yes, yes we, we
1: can." Oh, you betcha. Is that right? Well, se Puede came in Arizona, 1972. Arizona had a governor, uh, Jack Williams, that passed a law that denied farm workers the right to organize, boycott. It was terrible law, and so we had to figure out were we going to challenge it or not. And so we all went to Arizona to challenge it. We got there, and uh, been out talking to people. And Dolores Huerta actually came back. We were meeting in a, a hotel motel room. She said, "I've been talking to all these everywhere, and everywhere I go, people say." No se puede, no se puede, no se puede. She means, ah, oh, you can't do it. You can't do it. You know, it's just, you know, and, and we, we got we to gotta answer that. We got to say, si se puede. And so that became the slogan of that campaign was, si se puede. Yes, it can be done. And that then became a farm worker movement slogan, si se puede. So in New Hampshire, when Obama lost that night, and there were a lot of that talk going on around,
4: GENERATIONS OF AMERICANS HAVE RESPONDED WITH A SIMPLE CREED THAT SUMS UP THE SPIRIT OF A PEOPLE.
1: THEN HE COMES OUT, YES, Yes, WE we CAN. can. WELL, THAT'S he said.
4: YES, WE CAN. YES, WE CAN.
1: THAT WAS A GREAT MOMENT. THAT WAS WHAT SORT OF RAISED SUCH HOPES ABOUT HIS PRESIDENCY.
0: (laughs) DID PEOPLE COUNT TOO MUCH ON HIS CHARISMA AND DIDN'T ASSESS HIS INEXPERIENCE SUFFICIENTLY?
1: Oh, in retrospect, you know, probably so, you know, but I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think there's plenty of responsibility to go around. I mean, I think that, uh, I think there was too much readiness to just leave it up to Obama. And uh, I think that uh, uh, those of us who uh, wanted to do more about economic justice and immigration and climate change needed to do more. We had to be contentious. That's how it works. It's like this idea that contentiousness is somehow alien to democracy, and that consensus is somehow what democracy is about, and that polarization is bad, paralysis is bad. But you know, it's like Saul Alinsky said, organizers have to be well-integrated schizoids because you have to polarize to mobilize and depolarize to settle, but without polarizing you're never going to mobilize anything, and yeah, then there's a time to negotiate. I think we're really screwed up on that uh, right now. Oh, yeah,
0: there's, it's always been
1: struggle and conflict
0: and winners and losers that move us forward
1: that's, or backward. That's the heart of demo- democracy is a, for, is a system of contention. I mean, of constructive contention when it works. Again, Marshall Gans in the classroom. What did the farm workers want? You remember in the farm story, those that read that one? You remember, in this context, in this moment, what they wanted? The recognition for
4: UFW?
1: Yeah, it was recognition, and, and it wound up being recognition from a particular employer, Shenley Industries, a big liquor company in, in Delano. A union recognition means a contract signed between the workers and the union specifying wages, hours, working conditions, and all the rest. Very, very concrete objective, right? But that was like the focus of their efforts so that they could then move toward the bigger goals of, of broader justice and, and all the rest of it. And so the whole point about outcomes is specifying them clearly enough that you can actually focus in and commit to making it happen or not. And, and I think a lot of projects are sort of struggling with that right now, is how to specify the place between you know justice out there, goodness in the world, and like my next meeting.
0: Suppose one of those students said to you, uh, Professor Gans, I know that the farm workers were outfinanced and outmanned, and I know they were opposed by business owners and other labor leaders spurned them. Yet you say that they worked out a successful grassroots strategy to organize illiterate grape pickers. Is there
1: any lesson in that? The lesson would be to look at how it was they figured out how to do it. See, it's sort of like you don't copy that. But you sort of look at the depth of motivation they brought to it, the creativity. How did they figure out their strategy? How did they understand power? What did they understand about it? How did they continue to renew their spirit that they were able to keep moving forward? How did they? Well, there was a lot of this heartworking, a lot of the narrative, the storytelling, a lot of the celebratory, a lot of the nurturing of the heart. I mean, you know, it took us five years to run a great boycott and we had to reinvent that thing every year. And every year you're going back in and saying, okay, we got to start again. But, but you find in each other, in the solidarity, in, in the myths, if you wish, that, that feed you the capacity to keep going. I remember what you wrote once that you had learned in Mississippi
0: uh, during the summer of 1964. You said, all the inequalities between blacks and whites we're driven by a deeper inequality mm-hmm. the inequality of power that seems to me the fundamental reality of american life today
1: yeah i think the political inequality and the economic inequality and a kind of cultural inequality that sort of all reinforce one another is an enormous problem obviously i mean that's that's sort of what we're trying to deal with and so the question and and in some ways you could sort of think that liberal democracy is based on a deal that that Inequality in economic resources can be balanced by equality in political resources. In other words, that equal voice can somehow balance unequal wealth. Well, we're sort of way beyond
0: that. One man, one vote, one person, one vote has been, has, has been overwhelmed by
1: $100,000 and a million dollars. And it's not even just the money. If you live in a swing state, your vote counts so much more than if you live in New York or Illinois or California when it comes to electing a president. If you live in a swing district when it comes to electing a member of Congress, your vote counts. If you live in a district that's been gerrymandered so it's all Democrats or all Republicans, your vote does not count. So when you really look at whose votes count, it's a very, very small proportion. So we have some deep structural flaws that go all the way back to the beginning that aren't, they don't, it's not about us as a people or our culture, our beliefs. We're operating within a a set of political institutions that distort and actually warp our capacity to express our beliefs. Maybe what we really need is an equal voice amendment to guarantee that each vote actually had equal weight. That'd be pretty radical. And if we actually designed a system that did that, now, you know, would we get something like that tomorrow? No, probably not. But I guess my point is that, that there, there are a lot of sources of energy and change in the country, not to mention the world. A lot of it is generationally driven. It's in places that may be unexpected. Let me come closer
0: to where you and I are today. Occupy Wall Street mm. did pull economic inequality out of the closet and put it at the breakfast table, the lunch table, the mm-hmm. dinner table, mm-hmm. and the political round tables on Sunday. But it didn't hang around to fight for it. Mm-hmm. What happened?
1: Well, I think I think Occupy made a great contribution in that it did what you just said. It it took economic inequality, economic justice, and made it legitimate. But they got stuck. I mean they got stuck on a tactic without a strategy that went beyond a tactic. And, you know, one tactic doesn't build a movement. It takes it takes venues in which people can strategize about how to move the ball forward. You know, I mentioned at the beginning sort of these three elements of story, strategy and structure that you sort of need to, to build a movement and organization. You got to have your, the, the narrative is the why we're doing it. And then the strategy is how we're doing it, not just one tactic, but how, what's our theory of change? What's, what's our theory of, of how we're going to use our resources to influence those sources of power? and then. How are we? What's our structure through which we're figuring all this stuff out and working at it? And so they had problems there. You know, people confuse structure with oppression. Hmm. Uh, And Joe Freeman wrote a great piece. uh, This uh, the the feminist? The feminist sociologist called the tyranny of structurelessness, and and I have all my students read it, where she argues, you think structurelessness just, you're kidding yourself, any time a group of people get together, they are going to create a structure. The difference is whether it's visible or invisible, whether it's accountable or not, and whether it's, it's open and above board and, or whether it's all factionalized and, and personalistic. And so you choose what you want. And I think it's really honest. And so the rejection of structure is a sort of rejection of taking responsibility for self-governance.
0: So you talk about the power of story, And for the last 40 years the story of the free market has been the triumphant story in American culture.
1: It really is, you know, and 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 it it is a it's powerful because it has a moral dimension and it has uh, a a political dimension and it has an economic dimension. It's sort of like that the market means we're all free to make our own choices, so isn't that great because we want to be free and it's all about choices. And politically, well, it's all based on people making their choices. And so that's democratic. And economically, well, we all know it's efficient, right? Because that's how markets work. It's, and, and the problem is every one of those claims is fundamentally flawed and fundamentally an act of faith. I mean, Harvey Cox wrote this thing about the market as God. And, and, but the, the big question is where's the missing alternative counter to that? And I think that is an enormous intellectual challenge for our time right now. Where's that alternative? We need a new story. We need a new story. But it's also a new way of of describing our economic challenges and our political challenges that emphasizes not this idea of what each individual competes with each other individual as the answer, but the ways in which we cooperate and collaborate with one another as the answer. You know, Albert Hirschman, the the development economist, wrote this book a number of years ago. I'm sure you know about Exit Voice and Loyalty. And sort of the idea was okay, so you got an institution and it's screwing up. And so one way to fix it is to exercise voice. The other way is you can exit. The market solutions are all exit solutions. Explain it. Well, so you don't like the way the schools work? Exit. Make your own over here. And that way you exercise choice. You don't like the way public health works? Exit over here. Make your own. Now, the only problem is you can only exit and make your own if you got the money to do it. And so the result is that you create these parallel systems of elite systems that are fragment, you know, that fragment the whole. The public gets poorer and poorer and poorer and you create all these little isolated golden ghettos all around a privilege. And the focus is on how do we find market solutions, market solutions, market, when we should be saying, how do we find more effective ways to exercise voice? How can we have more, more effective public deliberation? How can we bring more people into the process? How can we create the venues where people can actually learn and deliberate with one another? So I don't know. There's potentials out there. But I think somehow we need to get this into the, we need to get into this debate. We need to get into this argument and have it be about something really substantive and not get drawn into these, oh, we're too polarized or something. We need to be more polarized, but polarized around the right things. Is there any kind of organizing like that going on? There's a lot of organizing going. I, I'm privileged to get to see it because I work with young people. Within the immigrant right. world, the Dreamers have done some great stuff. I mean, they do the organizing, the house meetings, the one-on-ones, all that good old organizing stuff. You know, the crew of young organizers that came out of the Dean campaign in 2003 in New Our Hampshire. Howard Dean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2003, 4, and that crowd that have you know percolated through Obama and all that in a variety of different ways, but they brought sound organizing techniques into electoral politics in a way that had disappeared. It had all been marketing. It was all marketing. And not that marketing's not there now in a big way, but the confusion between marketing and movement building is really a big one. And I think that's one of the things the environmental groups really, really missed the boat on. I think they thought that they could market their way to legislation. What I mean is that through polling and advertising, they could make what the changes they wanted palatable to enough of the people that that they could in that way create enough of a ground that they would get the legislation. That's a marketing proposition. Movement building is you know that you don't have a majority. What you got to do is build enough of a constituency that you can develop the power you need in order to achieve what you want. And so what you're doing is engaging people who engage other people who engage other people and you build a movement that way. Looking back on your
0: life, is there a, a core to it? Is there a common denominator?
1: Hmm. There were th- three questions posed by a first century Jerusalem scholar, uh, Rabbi Hillel, when, when asked, how do, we, how do we understand what we are to do in the world? And, and he responded with three questions. The first one is to ask yourself, if I am not for myself, who will be for me? It's not a selfish question, but it is a self-regarding question, sort of saying, ask yourself what you're about, what, what, what you value, what, what you have to contribute. But then the second question is, um, if I'm for myself alone, what am I? Which is, it's to even be a who and not a what is to recognize that we are in the world in relationship with others. And that our capacity to realize our own objectives is inextricably wrapped up with the capacity of others to realize theirs. And finally, um, if not now, when? The time for action is always now because it's often only through action that we can learn what we need to learn in order to be able to act effectively in the ways that we intend. And the fact that they're questions is also really important to me because it suggests that this work, this work of organizing leadership is not about knowing, it's about learning. And it's about asking and it's about understanding that it is about dealing with the uncertain. It is about probing the unknown. It's not about control. Uh, it's It's about learning through purposeful experience. And so that's kind of, I think, what I've tried to As I look back, what I've tried to learn, to teach, to do, to practice is how to be that kind of a learner and teacher.
0: Marshall Gans, I look forward to the next chapter of the story. Thank (laughs) you for sharing your time and ideas with me.
1: Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much.
0: If not now, when? Answering that question, committed citizens are taking lessons learned from Marshall Ganz's long career of organizing and activism and putting them to work. With me are two women from opposite sides of the country who are leading the way. Madeline Janis is co-founder and national policy director of LANE, the Los Angeles Alliance for a New Economy. The organization was created after the L.A. riots of 1992 and has helped lift tens of thousands of people from poverty, creating, quote, good jobs, thriving communities, and a healthy environment. Madeline Janis led the campaign to pass a living wage ordinance in Los Angeles. She worked with that city's community redevelopment agency and has advised community organizations and unions all over America. Here in New York, Rochelle LaForest is executive director of the organization Right to the City. Now in 11 states, It's dedicated to the principle that urban dwellers, especially the disenfranchised, have a right to shape and design the place where they live. Rochelle LaForest was a student activist, worked in organized labor and at Jobs with Justice, where she coordinated a successful effort that raised the New York State minimum wage. Welcome to You Both.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Do stories matter as Marshall Ganz says they do?
3: I think that very very true that we need story strategy especially strategy and structure those things really speak to the idea of a comprehensive a smart campaign as well as having a grassroots base and thinking through smartly what we want to win and all of that but i would say that i think it's more than a voice you have a struggling you know housekeeper in a hotel who cleans 25 rooms in a day and can barely you know make it and barely puts food on the table the idea of her being able to fight for better working conditions, a union in her hotel, living wage, that's gonna move her a lot more than just the theory of being able to have a voice in her democracy. Although when she finds her voice, it's just the most incredible, empowering thing. And it's overpowering when she stands up before a city council or she stands up before a press and tells her story. So the things come together you know, in a really amazing way
0: Gantz does say that the stories provide the motivation and the courage. Is that true in the case of the people you work with?
2: 100%. It puts a face to the organizing that happens on the ground, it makes very real the people and the material conditions. That, that they're going through. It it introduces neighbors to each other. It establishes trust. It's something that really starts to build the power and a collective voice of a community in a way that facts and figures and being able to put up front statistics just doesn't get to.
0: So give me an example.
2: Right to the City has a national campaign around affordable housing called the Homes for All campaign. And we could inundate you know our constituencies or a broader audience with the the facts and figures that show that millions of people are on waiting lists for affordable housing. Millions of Americans are homeless. Millions of people have been foreclosed out of their homes over the last five, uh, six years. But rather than put out the figures, which I could read over my coffee in the newspaper and say this is horrible, but rather than do just that, we are telling stories about the individuals who are living through these experiences. So uh, we've got Mark Harris in Atlanta who's connected to an organization, Occupy Our Homes Atlanta, which is a manifestation from the Occupy movement. He's a veteran, has been evicted from his home and is fighting, cannot find affordable housing in the city of Atlanta to be able to stay. And so telling his story puts an, uh, a, an actual human being behind the idea, allows people to see him, uh, to, to see a uh, Raleen Bergeson, who's another one of our members from Providence, Rhode Island, who is paying 70% of her income to rent, So what are the choices that she has to make around the quality of food that she's able to put on the table for her children, where she can send her kids to school, if she can send her kids to school, how she's able to get back and forth to work? Knowing these people, understanding them is the best way to be able to make those linkages.
0: You recently won a campaign for a living wage for hotel workers in Long Beach, $13 an hour. How did you do it?
3: So Long Beach is the second largest city in LA County, and we organized for two years in that city to win a living wage for all hotel workers, a living wage and five paid sick days. And we decided that we were going to do something differently there. We're going to do something the same in that the hotel workers themselves are telling their story, they're organizing, but we decided to organize small businesses. So we went out and we organized 130 small businesses to be part of a buy local campaign.
0: Why why small businesses? You would think that they would say, but if you raise wages for our workers, we're going to cut our profit margin. Mm
3: -hmm. I know, that's what you would think. But our polling showed that people recognize that the hotel workers who live in Long Beach, and there are a lot of them, Uh, don't have enough money to spend in their local stores because they're not making enough money. And so, and these hotels have been beneficiaries of big subsidies from the city and the government and therefore they should be able to pay a living wage to their workers. So our argument was, and the, the the small business people made that argument themselves. They were strong advocates. We want more customers, we want these hotel workers to be able to buy our clothes and our food. And so we had buy local signs everywhere. And then the most incredible thing was we won by 63%. And we kept seeing this something that we thought was wrong. We had to be an Alice in Wonderland story or something. We would see a Romney for president sign and a pro tea party for Congress and yes on the living wage, all on the same lawn. And that's because Uh, the idea of a living wage for people and their their neighbors to be able to spend money in local stores resonated. Mm And with so,
0: Republicans with
3: Republicans mm-hmm.
0: with people who, who might be voting for Romney?
3: Yes. People were so incredibly energized about winning and then, you know, January 1st, 2000 people and their families got this enormous raise and paid sick days. Yeah. So then we organized a state of the city for Long Beach. And, you know, we had overflow crowds from every neighborhood. We organized what? Uh, we States. called it a state of the city. People state of the city. And we had, you know, hundreds of people, every single person running for office, every person currently in office in Long Beach all came. And we were able to articulate this broader agenda with, you know, all the things that regular people care about. Mm -hmm. But it came off of the win, Mm -hmm. the fact that you, people said, wow, 63% of the people are with us.
0: I read that you did a story-based strategy with homeowners facing foreclosure, that you're doing it in 11 cities. Mm -hmm. What's the story there?
2: So there is actually this brilliant organization that moves and does training for organizations in this country called the Center for Story-Based Strategy. And their premise is exactly what Marshall describes, is that uh, values are communicated through meaning, not necessarily through facts, but giving meaning to a set of values and being able to tell a story. And so we've got a national campaign around housing that weaves foreclosure, uh, homeowners who are facing foreclosure, homeless families and homeless individuals, renters and public housing residents, for the first time really coming together to talk about how each of their stories influences each other and what each of their struggles has in terms of interconnectedness and how there's influence and so we brought them through a training with the center for story based strategy to really look at what the dominant narrative is around h- housing in this country what is it well for a long time it's been that you're a ticket to the american dream or demonstrating that you've arrived within the american dream that a piece of that is home ownership and that owning a home meant that you have claimed a stake and you are now a part of the fabric of this country. So what did that mean for people who were homeless, who were renters, who were part of public housing? Um, So it created a a huge chasm. And so we're challenging the assumption that home ownership means the American dream, Mm. but that rather that access to equitable housing and housing that is affordable and allows for people to participate in their communities is actually what the American dream is.
0: Madeline, I don't know of anyone who's won more organizing victories than you. Would you just tick off a few that you've won? Give me the headline of a
3: few of them. This past year, we won this huge victory around completely restructuring our trash, the way our trash mm-hmm. is dealt with. The way we deal with our trash in this country is an outrage, mm-hmm. both for our planet, but also for the people who handle it. Sanitation workers, people who sort the recyclables mm-hmm. or people who work in the landfills. Long story short, City of L.A. is going to be opening a new program next year. The entire city is going to be divided into 11 regions, and each of those regions is going to have amazingly great labor standards, mandatory recycling, composting, and clean trucks. We also won a clean trucks program at the Port of Los Angeles five years ago, where the port said to Walmart and all the big global companies, the old diesel trucks, you're going to have to phase them out, and you're going to have to use clean trucks. And you're gonna to have to by the way, you're gonna to have to deal with us um, directly. Um, this is not just some open market system. We actually are gonna exercise some control. Now that is before the US Supreme Court. So we don't know if we're gonna stick that the, the becoming, trucking companies and the, the
0: decision is expected soon. Yes. Any sense of how the argument's going?
3: We are worried. How do you deal
0: with the possibility that, for all this labor, it's going to be nullified by a five-four vote in the Supreme Court?
3: There is no turning back when you win a victory like that. Now that victory has resulted in an eighty percent reduction in pollution from the port, eighty percent reduction. Air is cleaner. You also have workers who are driving those trucks who are have been organizing, and because. Part of the problem was they were all misclassified as independent contractors. It, was a very, it is a very abusive industry. Well the, the tr- truck drivers themselves are starting to turn that around and win, win union elections and to negotiate real decent contracts. So Supreme Court might vote against us, but it's a, it's a movement mm-hmm. that cannot be stopped. What we're trying to do is imagine an, a, a new economy for all, mm-hmm. really, that lifts all boats and really get involved in our government, get people involved in our government in order to achieve that vision.
0: A new economy, oh, that involves a new story, doesn't it?
3: Yes, the new story of the economy is that everybody deserves a good job and a decent life, and that our government, our democracy, has the tools to ensure that, and that responsible companies are so welcome, and companies that are willing to work in partnership with community and balance their interests, we want them to do well, but with the community interests, will be more successful, and will have greater prosperity for everyone. I actually think that the push for a new economy is also around innovation.
2: So Marshall Gans had mentioned this dominant narrative that the market, the free market, solves all problems. You know, has the solutions to everything that we are encountering. Um, And I think that a new economy actually challenges that assumption that we all have, that the market has the answers. Um, And you can look around the world and even places here in this country where there are innovative economic models Uh, that are cooperative models, like cooperative uh, food systems, cooperative labor banks, um, cooperative housing systems, where communities actually have a a certain level of ownership. I think that's a really important component of what we mean when we start to talk about a new American economy.
0: Have either of you been able, with your colleagues, to sway a big corporation?
3: Many big corporations have have been swayed. We believe in winning. We recognize that we're not gonna win our whole dream. We're not gonna win our whole agenda immediately. We're gonna move step by step and hopefully we're gonna convert a lot of good businesses along the way to be our partners. Mm-hmm. And change the culture.
2: You know, you set a precedent. and So then you 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 model a culture that people want to, to emulate. I think for us, uh, Rather than a corporation, because the last several years have really been working on uh, consolidating a comprehensive housing campaign, we've been looking at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, essentially a bank, if you will, uh, holding most of the mortgages in this country and seeing many, many properties tank and go into foreclosure. And so uh, at the pinnacle of this fight around the foreclosure crisis, there's been a real battle around principal reduction, which is reducing the cost of a home to its current market value, as opposed to expecting the homeowner to pay what it was when they took out their mortgage, which would allow millions of people to stay in their homes. In addition to that, Uh, There's an obligation to fund the National Housing Trust Fund, which would create affordable housing throughout the country. So we've got Ed DeMarco, who's been the, uh, the acting director of the FHFA, the Federal Housing and Finance Administration, who has refused to even consider looking at principal reduction or the funding of the National Housing Trust Fund as a solution. And the win has been, Obama announced last week, that he's going to replace this man. You've been fighting to get him out. For years, we've been fighting. Four plus years, some of our groups knew that this was a problem and were targeting him from five or six years ago. And it really started to develop as the foreclosure crisis hit the forefront of the headlines that it pulled in new uh, local and, and national entities into this fight. And now this man is going to be replaced. And we are in the mix of discussing the kind of person that needs to be running the Federal Housing and Finance Administration. And it took years and lots of hard organizing. What kept grounds. you going? Um, people's stories, uh, people's joys and inspiration around small victories that happen on the ground. So in Springfield, Massachusetts, Springfield No One Leaves, a very small organization there got an ordinance passed that said that any mortgage holder that is able to foreclose a family out of their home has to pay a $10,000 bond to upkeep the property so that the entire community is not blighted and so that people's spirits are not killed. In Los Angeles, SAGE, Strategic Actions for a Just Economy, just won a comprehensive benefit, uh, a community benefit agreement with the University of Southern California, who wants to expand out and build student housing. And they were granted $20 million in creating affordable housing along with the student housing and a guarantee to hire 30 percent of those jobs locally. So those small victories aggregate to this larger sort of beating heart and people feeling deeply inspired by each other, but it takes work. So a a role for Right to the City Alliance is to bring those organizations together as often as possible to talk about those victories and the models and the challenges so that there's reciprocal inspiration happening across
0: the country. I'm going to give you both the last word by telling me, what can people listening do? What would you have them do?
3: There are great organizations in every part of this country, and probably not well known. So people can be involved in multiple ways. They can be involved in organizing around a living wage campaign, or around a housing rights campaign, or a campaign that's, you know, that's in- environmental, and, or building sustainable communities and good jobs. Um, there are, you can be involved in your church, and you know, in churches and synagogues, there are a lot of religious leaders of faith who are connecting to groups like, for example, Clergy and Lady United for Economic Justice. In California, there are chapters all over. Uh, the National Interfaith Committee. Um, be involved in your union. A lot mm-hmm. of people still belong to unions in this country. And, but unions are made up of human beings and those unions are not going to become progressive stalwart leaders in this country until you and all of your co-workers take responsibility for your union and become involved and fight for, for a really broader progressive agenda. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways to become involved, and you, know, you just have your pick of them. And I would say also, contribute your fund, your, your own personal money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, $50 here, $100 there, from everybody really adds up.
2: $2, $5 really adds up. Uh, and I would add that there are even smaller and more manageable things that people can do. Um, educate your family really be open to learning about what what is the vehicle for your values that really gets your values expressed Um, you know be open to talking to your children around about immigration Uh, and what that fight is about, about education and what it means, what the fight looks like to make sure that they're able to be educated, about housing, have conversations with your community and your family, volunteer your time, open your home for an organization to be able to hold a meeting or bring some people together. There are so many ways, but so much of it can start with how you communicate in your home, how you open yourself up to understanding what, uh, the, the, the political current is, what the political moment is, and the way that you can be engaged is huge in and of itself.
0: Rochelle LaForest and Madeline Janice, thank you very much for being with me. I've really enjoyed this conversation.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us.
4: Moyers and Company is produced by Public Affairs Television. You can learn more about the team that collaborates to produce the series at BillMoyers.com. Our radio producer is Helen Sulphan. Our editor is Paul Henry Desjardins. Funding is provided by Carnegie Corporation of New York, celebrating 100 years of philanthropy and committed to doing real and permanent good in the world. The Kohlberg Foundation, independent production fund with support from the Partridge Foundation, a John and Polly Guth charitable fund. The Clements Foundation, Park Foundation, dedicated to heightening public awareness of critical issues. The Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting organizations whose mission is to promote compassion and creativity in our society. The Bernard and Audrey Rappaport Foundation. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information at macfound.org. Anne Gumowitz, the Betsy and Jesse Fink Foundation. The HKH Foundation, Barbara G. Fleischmann, and by our sole corporate sponsor, Mutual of America, designing customized individual and group retirement products. That's why we're your retirement company.